Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Kokanu. Have better sex naturally. Silky, gentle Kokanu enhances sex in a totally natural way. Isn't that right, Sophia? Oh, hell yeah. I've been using the water-based formula, and mm, mama likes. I've been sliding from my house all the way to Bone Town. That's right. Slippery slope, thanks to Kokanoo. Seriously, we've been coming all over the place here, and Kokanoo has been a blessing upon our houses. And if you guys want to join us in Bone Town, use promo code PRIVATE for 15% off your order at kokanoo.com. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast that explores love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak. And I'm Sophia Alexandra, aka Soaps and Cokes. Soaps and Cokes, that's right. And we have an exciting announcement for you guys. That was a drum roll. That was a pretty good. That was a better one. That was like someone who can perform oral sex drum roll. <laughs> not to brag. I'm not here to brag, but actually I've never. Why are you sucking yeah. on the mic right now? <laughs> <laughs> if you're not here to brag. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but you guys, this announcement will get you wet, right? I mean, dude, I don't know what their life is like. Guys, we've joined a new podcast network. It's That's exciting, huh? So exciting. So we were on Sex Talk with your mom. So if you've ever listened to that podcast or like Shameless Sex or a bunch of other really great ones, you've listened to a pleasure podcast. And it was started by Cameron Porter and Karen Lee Porter, who are the hosts of that show. And we are just so excited to be a part of their team. A bunch of other freaks. Yeah. Sex uh, obsessed people. It's pretty fun. We found our tribe. I know. It's pretty cool. And we got another freak on the podcast today. (laughs) Oh, shit. From New York, baby. That's right. This is the last in our New York series. And this interview is with Alita Kai. She is a dominatrix and healer. Like a, I don't know. We were smitten. Honestly, you guys are going to hear as the episode progresses. (laughs) Sophie and I just are in a trance from Alita we sound real dumb for some of them. We're like, oh, we're okay, like, yeah, what whatever happened. you said sounds amazing. Oh, I know what happened. <laughs> oh, 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 that's cool. You you hear people? That sounds great. We are spitting kittens, but she is a delight. You guys are going to love her. And it's so interesting to hear about the inner workings of a dominatrix and what kind of release and what kind of work BDSM Power dynamics is. are fascinating and also how it relates to her cultural identity, I think is really interesting. Yeah, as a Chinese woman and like what it took for her to become who she is now and what 
the cultural restraints she felt like she was breaking through are just really interesting. And Alita is now, I think she's recently moved to Los Angeles. Yes, and to pursue her writing and acting career, I believe. Yeah. Just kind of exciting to see someone over the course of a few months just redirect their life in a different way, right? Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I actually cannot wait to see her pop up. And I know. I would things. watch her on the screen. Uh, I'm watching her in the screen of my mind right now. <laughs> Here, you guys can listen. We're still in New York, baby, and we are so excited to be here with our Instagram crush, Alita Kai. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Very excited. Oh, my God. So uh, you are the high priestess of BDSM, right? <laughs> sort of, something like that. I mean, I would say I've been a professional dominatrix for six years. I also have a healing practice that's vanilla, but I also incorporate a lot of my healing in my BDSM. So I've like developed a new template of BDSM healing, which ventures from sexuality to spirituality and all the realms in between. I am also an actress and a writer, so a smattering of all different things. <laughs> nice. So the the healing and the spirituality part is like especially interesting. How do you incorporate the two? Well, I do kind of like remote healings for anyone. And um, actually recently it's been mostly sex workers who've reached out for healing because I feel like they trust me being that I'm also in the industry and can understand a few things that maybe other people are not as able to grasp, which has been so interesting. I love um, meeting women in the industry. And within my BDSM healing, it happens maybe once every three, four months. It really is an intuitive resonance. Whenever I feel I'm like, okay, this person is in their like in their spiritual awakening process. And I know that I need to go in there and help them catapult them out of the vibration that they're currently in. So um, what I do is I integrate a lot of BDSM tools. I understand what they want in the session from a BDSM standpoint, say like they're really into flogging or caning or something. I incorporate that, but it's not even about anything sexual or release oriented. It's using those as tools to heal them. So I look at them energetically, emotionally, are they shut down? Where are their holding patterns? Where are the emotional blocks and blocks in their life to release? And I work with that and incorporate energy healing, clairvoyant healing, um, even hypnosis sometimes from erotic hypnosis to actually therapeutic hypnosis. And it's a very transformative three to four hour session that then they leave and they're like fatigued for the rest of the weekend because it's just like on so many levels, they're releasing all these blocks and they shift vibrations. So what does that look like? Like if I came in yeah. and I'm like, I am ready to be healed. And you're like, okay, let's do this three, four hour session? How, what does that look like? It's a very good question. So it would be very much in the dynamic. So you would be a sub for me. And, um, just that being said, I don't normally see women because I feel like I can't really have a hierarchy with women. I treat women as equals. And I feel like in the culture that we're in, sure we're shifting, but there's still like patriarchal undertones. And so it's easier for me to work with those and try to correct them. Mm. So that's why, but that being said, you would, um, be in a very submissive position. So I'd put you on your knees. You'd have to be completely undressed because there's something about that dynamic where I'm fully dressed and I'm in a very authoritative outfit. Say it's like latex or there's something that imbues this like aesthetic of, okay, she's 
elevated. Power. Power, exactly. I would begin the session kind of just setting the space, maybe have you do a few um, vocal exercises, depending on what you need, breathing exercises to set you in. I would then quickly find a way to get you into subspace. And at that point, I would clear your energy. And then from that point on, for the next couple hours, it's like different types of manual tools, like flogging, maybe if that's something or like bondage or heavy restraints or even sensory deprivation or whatever it is that I feel. And weirdly enough, before a session, I'm like prepping for hours and maybe sometimes even a day. And I'll get images in dreams or like through my meditation right before where I know exactly what it is that would be the best tools for you. And we'd go through that whole thing. And then by the end of it, I would spend like maybe an hour, however long, just doing deep, deep energy healing or connecting you to parts that you need to connect to. Um, I bring in all sorts of other tools like metaphysical devices and crystals, anything that I feel like would help you. And then by the end of it, I do, I do focus on aftercare. So just make sure that you're in a really good place. And, um, usually by the end, my subs are crying. They're just like bawling and they're in this totally different, it's like partially trans, partially subspace, but partially just totally energetically relaxed and healed. And then they go home. They look like they're beat up. Their faces are all flush. They look like they've like reverse aged five years. I swear. It's like the way they smile and like the glint in their eyes. And that's that would be it. And then we would stay in touch, of course, and make sure that you're okay. I that's love fascinating. that. <laughs> when you say subspace, yeah. literally the thing I was going to ask too. <laughs> Can you explain that to us? Sure. Subspace, I believe, is um, a state of mind. It's similar to transfer, like this very meditative state, state that's accessed when someone is really really, really relaxed and very much surrendered in BDSM particularly. So it's sort of, you can tell because their eyes kind of glaze over and they look like they're high. Their pupils are very expanded. Um, they, they kind of are just more like malleable in a way where they're not fully in control of their body anymore. They're just relaxed. They're very pliable. And I do believe they go into a headspace where it's almost a slight drop. It's that's different sub drop, but they're I believe chemically something with the serotonin levels are maybe a little bit depleted at that moment. I am not an expert on on the brain chemicals of this process, but definitely I look at the physiological changes. And um, a lot of people can only really find this in BDSM. So that's like a very big escape for them. And so that's why they would seek out a dom. Amazing. So tell us about your journey into BDSM. Like when did you start? How did you know you were into it? Sure. Well, I started about six years ago. I was working in fashion and I kind of was like in a a period where I was a little bit lost and confused and I had insomnia. So I would be looking online at Craigslist at like silly postings. And I remember finding this dungeon at one point and it was all about like, are you able to beat up bad guys? <laughs> it was like, instead of like, you're a superhero. Can you do this? I'm like, can I do this? Cause back then I was very submissive and like growing up in a very traditionally Chinese home, that's actually quite misogynistic. I was very disempowered. And then also working for bosses too. I mean, I think the way that I related to the world at that point, very early twenties was one of submission. So I thought, is it possible for me to even take the other, the upper hand or, you know, the dominant side of the equation? And so I just, out of curiosity, submitted my photos. I didn't think I was at all like aesthetically 
up to par or whatever what I would imagine as someone who could be a sex worker. Oh my god, we're looking at like the most She's gorgeous. So gorgeous. Oh <laughs> we're like swooning. We're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. Yeah, well what else? Uh-huh. <laughs> too nice. <laughs> I think but like as I think as women, maybe like there's always this like body image thing, right? Sure. Like you never think that at least I do. I was like, oh, I'm never like up to par. I'm looking at Instagram, like these supermodels, you know what I mean? So I like didn't think I could do it. Um, I remember going into the dungeon. I got called in and I was like, just so surprised. Like my, my heart was just like pounding. You know, those moments where it's adrenaline running through you and you're just, all you hear is your heartbeat. I remember seeing all the floggers and all the hoods and I was in this pink room with all these like tutus and giant size 10 shoes. I'm like, what is this? And I thought, if anything, it's so gripping that I have to try it. I know this is going to be shocking, but why not? It's in the end, if I don't do it, I mean, at least it makes a good story. Right. But I loved it from that point. There were moments though, I almost didn't go back. I had so much anxiety. Remember my first golden shower? I was like, ah, people do this. (laughs) Or just like seeing the way, like the intimate way that these women were very just like good at handling other people and their vulnerability. I'd never done that before. Back then I couldn't really even touch a guy like without like, you know, flinching a little bit. I think I had a lot of issues that I didn't realize with intimacy or with like men and in this space, it was, I just felt an opportunity to change all that, to heal from that and understand. That's so great. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just captivated. This is fascinating. So when did you really come into your like full Dom? Did you go from being like a participant to being like, I need this to be who I am? Was it like a slow shift or quick? How did it happen? Very good question. I've never actually been asked that. It happened slowly. At first, it was a very jarring, like awakening. And it took quite a long time for me to actually settle into it and feel comfortable with it. Back then, I had a different mistress name and one that um, was kind of given to me. I didn't really have a lot of choice. And I felt very disempowered even in the dungeon. You know, the initial part sets in and there's a term called mistress-itis that a lot of first-time doms get within the first three to six months. And it's a sense of like entitlement, like radical confidence. I got that. But then after a while, it levels off and you're like, oh, so I'm not actually that powerful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then... After about a year and a half at the dungeon, I decided to go independent. This is when I was getting my master's at NYU. And I decided then that I should just at least do this through school. I had thought that I was going to go get my PhD. And what was your master's in? It was in film studies. I just love film. So I just, you know, the, the way that it's studied is very psychological and theoretical. And that's the way that I ventured into BDSM. Um, from that point on, I think it was a slow like slow acceptance of this part of me that was emerging, that was more feeling empowered and understanding that, wait, actually as an independent dom, I can set the tone. I can decide what my parameters are. And there's no dungeon telling me how I split my money, what I do, how I can do it. And um, you go through, I think, lots of trials being independent dom when you don't have much guidance whatsoever or any. And that is really scary. So that's why I also like published a book, a a kind of a manual for women. So they know kind of how to juggle everything, what to look out for. What's it called? um, Pro Dom. I just just published it on Amazon. It's like very short, but just kind of like how you set up your business. So after that point, I think it just was like a part of me and I just really awakened to and embraced it. And 
I think it's very radical from who I was brought up to be, but in understanding those and shedding all the layers, it has saved me in many ways. And I don't, I can't consider myself, I don't know who I would be without Alita. Like that's me now. (laughs) What is it like, what's the crossover from your personal sex life to being a pro dom? What carries over? I would say, honestly, not much. It's like, I think there comes a point in time when you're so entrenched in being professional, you compartmentalize without even realizing. And I put that as work. And then sex life is like personal life and private life. I think the divide between public and private gets so radically shifted and um, further apart as you do this. And to be honest, I like, I was going through my own sexual healing and exploration in the last few years. And First, pro-doming kind of shut me down sexually because you were so used to being perceived sexually that it became just an image. And when you went home, sex was just work. I mean, sexual energy was work. There was no sex at the dungeon. I have to preface that. But, um, you know, I didn't really, I couldn't open up to people. There was a level of shame like, oh, I'm a sex worker. I'm in a dungeon. I feel like most men won't accept that. So I didn't disclose much about myself, became very guarded. And then as it went on, I started, I like had periods of celibacy and with sexuality and how spirituality, they don't really sit together in certain schools of thought to work through all that. And then I became more open to experimenting a little bit. And I started seeing if I was actually really kinky in my personal life. And what I found was that I'm actually a little more submissive um, with relationship to kink. That's interesting. Right. It's like, I kind of needed someone to put me in my place. (laughs) Yeah, because you don't want to be the same person at work that you are at home. I mean, vice versa. We always talk about that, though, because Sophia and I are like kind of aggressive. Yeah, very bossy bitches. (laughs) (laughs) But then with our partners, we're like, it's nice to not be in charge. Yeah. Right. I feel you kind of just want someone else to... Yeah, to like just take over. But it's probably the same psychology as many of the subs that I see too. It's like they're, I mean, that's the stereotype is they're very like dominant in work and they need to relax. So I think it's all about the checks and balances. Um, But then lately I've come to find that I'm not so sure how I sit with like, I think BDSM is always going to be a part of me. It's going to be running through my psychology all the time. But I feel like for me, it's more of an intellectual thing and it's a curiosity and it's a way to approach healing, less so my personal sexuality. This episode is brought to you in part by Clona Willie. And the brand new Clona Pussy Plus. Like the original Clona Willie kit, the new addition to their DIY molding line comes with everything you need to create a custom masturbation sex toy at your house. What? It's the first of its kind. The Clona Pussy Plus allows anyone, anyone, me, Sophia, you guys at home, to cast an exact replica of a vulva in silicone and attach it to the included masturbation sleeve. Can you say best present ever? Like next time your man goes out of town or your woman, you can literally be like, take my pussy, take my dick with you. What a romantic way to say, I'll always be with you even when I'm not with you. I love it. And the company standards are super high. They have 100% body safe materials. The directions are so easy to follow that even Soph and I can do it. We're pretty dumb, you guys know that. Yeah, not good at directions over here. You guys, this is a super high quality final product. It's one of a kind. It's totally unique to the industry. 
And like Sophia said, it makes the perfect gift. I mean, come on. What a fun thing to do with your partner, right? Yep. And because we love you so much, we created a custom promo code for our listeners. Private. Use it for 20% off your own custom penis or vagina. That's promo code private for 20% off at clonawilly.com. Um, I want to go back to something you said. Yeah. Um, you said that it took you a while to become who you are, and that was very yeah. different from who you were raised to be. Yeah. And I just want you to talk a little bit about, yeah, who were you raised to be? I was raised to be very obedient. So in the Chinese culture, there's this idea of guai, which is like obedience. And that for a lot of children is like the most important value that you can have. So you are obedient to your family, to society, to school, especially school. It's all heavy on the education. Um, For me, I mean, of course, that's also considering, you know, the like the group mentality of China and, you know, of course, politically as well, just the history of it. Um, For me, I was raised, let's see, my mother was very dominant. She was a tiger mom. So she broke my will from the time I was young. (laughs) It was like, always, (laughs) always practice piano. You have to do, you know, you're just, I think I grew up wanting, uh, wanting love or it was like withheld from me in so many ways because I was raised in a very conditional way. My, I believe it was like very heavy on education. My father went to Harvard for his PhD. He's like a super intellectual. So my standards for education were so high. Um, I mean, literally the highest possible PhD yeah. from Harvard. You're like, shit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It like stops there. <laughs> totally. Um, and yeah, my, I, I think I was raised to be like very conservatively Chinese. Like my parents had only had sex with each other. So mm-hmm. I was kind of like, I think, slut-shamed just by like even exploring a little bit or having a boyfriend at the age of 18. My mom, I could tell, she was like, oh my, that's horrible. Like, are you going to marry this person? I Um, relate to that. My parents are really conservative. And I think my mom's has only been with my dad and my dad maybe has had like one other partner. I don't know, <laughs> but it's, it is, Nerds. It, no, I'm just kidding. it's really cute, but it is cute for them, but, but it's also, also growing up in that yeah. it, it does make yeah. it like seem there's a little bit more shame or just like, yeah, it's not encouraged that you, you should, explore that. Yeah. You should be allowed to figure out what you like and who you like to be with and yeah, all that. Definitely. I think more having more than one partner is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Word up to that. <laughs> I put up some numbers. Um, so you talked about having high powered uh, clients. Yeah. And I want to hear a little bit more about what kind of jobs they do and some of the tropes of these people and what makes them tick. And yeah. Um, that's a very good question. So I would say the broad range were people who had certain socioeconomical, like, how do I, well, they had an intersection of money and time and privacy. And so because of that, they probably had some sort of high level or mid to high level job. That being said, that's, um, there, I've had a full range of people that have really defied that. But, um, most men are Caucasian. Most men are within like maybe 35 to 55 age bracket. And, um, they're usually in like finance or business or even doctors, but I've had like many, I've had artists or even at the dungeon. I remember my youngest client was 18. 
um, a lot of people want to experiment. Some people, most people have a vanilla relationship where they can't get this, so they have to outsource it. And then I have other people who are just really in this lifestyle who are slaves and they've been with mistresses from for like 20 to 30 years and this is their life calling. So there's no sort of one strict um, template. I would say the majority are definitely high powered. And nowadays, because I'm more in the kooky, like not everyone can understand what I do. Also, I rarely respond or accept people in my practice. Um, I would say these people are a little more open-minded to spirituality, to energy, to healing. And a lot of them kind of can intuitively sense that there's some sort of resonance with me as well. So I saw on your Instagram Q&As that you actually fell in love with one of your slaves. Sort of. Wow, you guys did your research. (laughs) (laughs) I'm impressed. So there was one time, man, okay, so this was like one of my first sessions on my own on the dungeon. So after you train for like a month, I think he was like maybe my third client or something. And I remember he came in and there was this immediate like, oh, whoa, <laughs> attraction. And um, I remember it being so hard to dom him. And we later talked about it and he said it was so hard to submit to me because I think back then I still had this idea in my mind that to be attractive, I had to be a submissive lady. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some sort of that. And he had the opposite to be a perceived attractive to be perceived as an attractive man, he felt like he had to kind of like expand, right? Like be more dominant. So the dynamic didn't work out and he didn't see me again in the dungeon. I remember one time I did a cameo session, which is when the girls would go and step into other people's sessions to like say hi. And I did that and he was there. And I remember this, like, he just like turned away really fast because he was like embarrassed to see me. And then when I went independent, he was one of my first clients independent. He's like found me and he's like, Hey, let's session. So we did this fun session where like, I figured out his interests. He really liked wine. So I said, you're going to be my sommelier and you're going to get like a couple bottles of different wines that you think I'm going to like. And I knew that he liked spit. And so I figured out a way to, so he like was locked up in a cage. He greeted me with all these bottles of wine. And I said, get me a spit bucket or whatever those things are called. And then he like, we had a wine tasting, but then I would spit it on him or like in his mouth. (laughs) And like, I never had that kind of dynamic where it actually felt very romantic. And for whatever reason, I think we, he was calling me a lot on Night Flirt, which is like a, a line where people can pay to talk to doms. Um, but I think we just somehow got to a point where we had dinner together and it was clearly a romantic situation. We continued to see each other in that way for a while. And then he had a visa situation, so he had to move back to London Ooh, that sexy British Ouch. accent. Yeah. Mm, that I, did it for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to resist. <laughs> um, and he he ended up moving away. My heart was broken, and then like I don't I don't think I fully really got over it to be honest. But that's why I would encourage um, doms to not date their clients because it's such a gap with it when it comes to power dynamics. It's already set in one way, especially if it's client provider. So even if it's outside of the BDSM space, somebody's holding the power and it's usually like this unconscious thing where it's like that person expects me to almost satisfy his fantasy. So I found that really hard to leverage. 
And then I just found like we didn't really have that much in common, but BDSM, but it feels so intense in that space that you think that that's all that matters, which I really don't believe is true anymore. Are you currently in a relationship? I'm not currently in a relationship. I've been single for six years. What? Yeah. Do you do apps and stuff? What do you? What do you mean? Like, are you dating? apps. Oh, apps. Like Tinder. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I would say, um, throughout the six years I've had like periods of not dating anyone. And then some periods where I've like dated a few people. It's hard. I'm such a weirdo that I think it's hard for me to like find a perfect match, but I have had a few like very great people in my life that never really fully formed into a relationship because I think from the sex work, I created all these walls like my acting teacher can see it she's like you create all these energetic walls where you're hiding it's like you're cloaked in some sort of secrecy Mm. which I think you have to be if you've been working in the industry for so long because people pay you to hold their secrets um so it's been difficult like I've had intimacy coaches I've had to work out relationship stuff and and I feel like I still have a ways to go but I have met some really great people and I'm like I'm excited. I don't think commitment is something that is that easy for me. I have to be totally sure. I think that also goes back to like the way I was brought up. My parents were married from the time they were so young Mm. and being that they were like, you know, there's so much pressure for monogamy and commitment means forever. I feel that same thing. I totally do. And I watched them like they're happy. They're still happy together. So it's like hard to look at your own life against that measuring stick. Totally. So what kind of, tell us like what kind of services, BDSM services you provide? What's kind of the, the standard fare? And mm-hmm. then what's kind of like the wilder shit or funnier shit you've done? Now, mostly it's the BDSM healing sessions. And then I also do erotic hypnosis, which is like really intense where you can go with someone. I just had one recently where I gave him trigger words for like evoking certain sensations in his body. Like I could drop him into subspace really easily. I would say a word or I would drop him into, I like conjured up in his body, um, the most intense orgasm that he could possibly ever have. And I gave him a trigger word for that. So then as soon as I said it, he was like, Oh, <laughs> like, like flipping out. Um, and that's just fun. It's like fun for me to play with the mind in a way that's safe and consensual. And then I also make my subs in that space, create their fantasies in their mind. So like the thing is that, yes, I'm being paid to fulfill a certain fantasy as a dom. But that being said, fantasy and reality never fully collide. Whatever I do is never going to be fully matched to what this person has like projected or seen me do in his mind. So I said, why don't we just stay in the mind and just see it, you know, make it happen. So I just kind of guide them through creating it and then also lean back a few times and let them explore it in their space. And it's crazy when you check in, they're like, oh my gosh, this mistress is my, this mistress is me tied up and put me in a vac bed. And now she's like playing with my nipples and has electrodes on me. I'm like, wow, you, you were really creative for, for a doctor. Like, you know, like for someone who I wouldn't naturally like be like, you're an artist or anything. So, <laughs> so, so much of your work now is not even actually electrocuting them or actually flogging them. They're doing it in their minds. Exactly. So I gave him a word for the zapping for the electrodes and I like planted it in his head. I was like, this is where one of the electrodes is X, Y, and Z. And then whenever I said the trigger word, he would go like he would be zapped. 
by it. Oh, that's, that's crazy. The, you know, the mind is so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. I mean, it's like a simple exercise where you imagine eating a lemon. And even if you're not hypnotized, your mouth starts to salivate and you get that taste in your mouth. It's all the same. That's that's so wild. Yeah. I also just really like, you know, the fact that it's interesting that you can um, heal people and be so tuned into like what they uh, need and just be able to have these intense experiences with them. And then you're like, I've been single for six years. Do you think your sexual or your otherwise like important energies going into your work and you don't have enough for yourself? Or do you think it's just like, for whatever reason, and you not been the, the time right person yeah. or whatever? That's a really good question. I would say it's both. And also I think it's because I can engage very intensely and intimately with somebody in a preserved time period. So there's like a boundary there. It's like whether it's a monetary exchange or a certain compartment of time, three hours, two hours. And that's safe for me. And I feel like outside of the dungeon, when I'm relating to someone without any of those boundaries in place, it's like, I feel like there's more to lose or I don't know what to do. You know how it's like, I think it's similar to a sub where the parameters kind of free you because you kind of know what you're allowed to do and not. When there aren't any, it's like, oh, free for all. And it's a little bit scary. I mean, they say psychologically, when someone walks into a grocery store and there's so many options, you think options are good, but it stresses people out. And if you give them maybe like three options, that's a lot easier to choose and a lot more economical when it comes to their energy. I feel like it's that. And then also, Sophia, as you mentioned, like um, my energy was going into my work. Yes, I think for a long time, my workspace sat in my relationship space. It like took over. Mm. And so I was getting kind of like my needs met by the by the opposite sex through those intimate engagements that were very much compartmentalized. And I didn't realize that until I took more of my energy out. And that's been easier for me to date, but like, it's hard to negotiate that stuff, I think. Yeah. I mean, you're also in charge of so many powerful emotional experiences all the time. It's kind of hard to like sort all of that out and then also be like, yeah, and I'm dating. Yeah. That's, exactly. that's a lot. Exactly. Yeah. And it's hard to find someone just period. Yeah. In general with yeah. no caveats whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Oh my God. This has been amazing to learn about your practice and I love the healing work is so incredible. Wait, I have a question. Yeah. Do you hate 50 shades of gray? For sure. <laughs> I figured you would. Yeah. How annoying. It's so annoying. I remember the time I saw, it, I was just like, this is awful in so many ways. I mean, clearly they didn't have any sort of guidance by like professionals and clearly they kind of link BDSM interests to being a psychopath. Like there's like a lot of trauma that was there that was unresolved. And so he's a stalker and there was just so many things wrong with it. And it's like that paradigm of the predator and kind of an abusive boyfriend and that being sexy, I think is just a really toxic one. Cause we don't want, I really don't want women in this world thinking that that is romantic and they try to liken the two. Yeah. Can you explain to our listeners some of the main differences between actual BDSM and what the hell is portrayed in that 50 shades of gray movie? Absolutely. The one thing that I noticed right away was that he flogs her in her kidneys and that's an absolute no, no. you never hit someone there. Also along the spine is sometimes you can do the upper back, but the spine is sensitive and also the back of the neck is sensitive. There's just areas to avoid and he didn't 
take care to avoid any of that. I would say um, it needs to be, I don't really feel like there was a lot of consent that was involved. I know that she signed a contract, but it seemed like he did whatever to her whenever he wanted to. I would say there's more of like a loving gentleness in the way that I react to my um, subs. And I think it's just, he just seemed like he was erratic and out of control. And I really feel like you need to be in control and centered in this space in particular. He just seemed like such a weirdo in a bad way. (laughs) That's That's not a good review. No, I think she described him perfectly. (laughs) He's kind of a psycho. Total psycho. And he followed her all over. Yeah, he stalked her. So weird. Like, ew, sexy. People are like, this broke all Valentine's Day records. I'm like... What is wrong with us? It's so sad. Yeah. So true. So yeah, basically don't do anything you saw in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good tip to leave our listeners on, right? (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. This has been so amazing. Where can people find you? They can find me online at alitakai.com. So I have all different offerings, even life coaching. And then on Instagram at alitakai. And Kai spells C-A-I. Exactly. I would go to you for life coaching. You might have a long distance customer soon. I love that. Yeah, I do a lot of remote stuff and clairvoyant readings and healings, everything. Remote Reiki. I'm Um, down to cry a little. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Thank you. That was so freaking interesting. Yeah, what a journey. I love everything about the intersection of BDSM and healing and she's amazing. I'm like, please make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) You guys, we're big Instagram stands for Alita Kai and we just looked her up and she's not on Instagram right now. Um, Yeah, I think it's maybe has to do with her pursuing her acting and maybe she's not going by her dominatrix name. Uh, We don't know. These are all guesses. But her Instagram was amazing because it would have these great essays attached to her amazing photos and videos. Q&A's, really interesting stuff. Yeah, just things that are like the inner workings of someone who is like clearly incredibly uh, creative creative and and intuitive and yeah, thoughtful. Yes. But you can still check out her website. She's at alitakai.com. And she's still on Twitter. Yes. So just, you know, beg her to come back to Instagram, I guess. You know what? I can relate to being overwhelmed by Instagram, right? I mean, or, all of it you know, is whatever. horrible and overwhelming, really. Yeah. All of the social media sites. Anyway, relatable content. Hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag like, oh, we do relatable content. <laughs> um, so next week, we're going back to Helsinki, you guys. Yeah, we're going to do the masculinity episode we've been promising you guys masculinity in a feminist country and um, if you didn't listen to our first two episodes out of new york the billy Presida episode and windy starling so freaking good you guys and this alita app i feel like is the perfect, perfect. ending yes perfect cherry on the top of perfect. the cake perfect you know what i mean oh god <laughs> We're going to Italy. No, we're not. We're We're not. not. If we were, we would not announce it like that. We would announce it properly with a picture of me eating pasta. Chef Boyardee outfit. (laughs) I would come out dressed as Mario, and you would come out dressed as Luigi, and that is how we would announce it. Interesting. I guess we would be Mario and Luigi like that. Yeah. Why would you not be on board with that? 
Do you want to be Mario? I'll be Luigi. I don't care. I don't know. It's it's just weird for us to cast ourselves <laughs> as Mario and Luigi. I've never... Why? How do you even decide what qualities to bring? You do you know? like a little green outfit or a little red outfit? <laughs> They're exactly the same man. <laughs> okay. You're welcome, you guys, for this nonsense. Hey, Sophia, what's that bomb-ass music? I'm so glad you asked. This music is by our super talented friend, Amy Rosh. Find her on Spotify, R-A-A-S-C-H. This episode was mixed by Mike Castaneda from Plastic Audio. We We love you, Mike. If you like the show and you're feeling generous, please smash down those five stars and a sweet review on iTunes. You guys, it makes us feel so, so good. It helps other people find the show. And we're going to read your review on air. And I'm going to send you a button if you screenshot your review and holler at us. Do it. We're Private Parts Unknown on Instagram and Private Parts Un on Twitter because they suck. Yeah, suck it, Twitter. Suck it, anybody who doesn't like this podcast. See you guys next week. (laughs) No, not the baby voice. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy. Interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood? Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.